The opinions in this program are not necessarily shared by the Cortez Radio Board of Directors or staff. What humans have failed to do voluntarily, nature will help us to do. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's usually kind of um, chaotic and traumatic and involves a lot of, a lot of people dying. You're listening to CKT said 89.5 Cortez Community Radio. This is Max Tyson for Cortez Currents. This year has seen a couple of fairly major shocks to the global industrial economic system that so many of us rely upon. One could say that we had a near collapse experience. I thought it might be wise to take a moment, step back, and have a look at the bigger picture to see where Western civilization is at, what's driving us, and what kinds of future we might want to plan for? How does the pandemic fit in with other threats to stability? To help me with this, I sought out the ideas of a Cortez Island thinker and researcher who deals with a lot of the shit on this island that most people would rather flush away without looking at. He's a plumber, but so much more. Chris Walker. I'm probably one of the nutcases who has some critical thinking skills on a good day. Super briefly, um, age 30, building a house uh, for the, my first house, uh, and I learned about solar electric panels of batteries living off grid. I thought that was really, really cool. Decided I wanted to work in that field and did a few systems. Then I realized that all of these systems were being put in. They weren't actually about reducing fossil fuel consumption. They were just about people uh, not having to put in electrical power lines or having a high desire to be independent or something. So I got heavily involved in the Green Party for 10 years and ran as a candidate uh, in six, seven elections and uh, did very well for a Green Party candidate. But after seven elections, I realized that uh, in the end, people vote for the same old stuff. I sort of said, well, this is not working. And I sort of came to the, the realization that, that we probably were not going to be proactively successful in solving these very deep structural problems that we have with our economy and its effect on the environment and its effect on people all over the world. So I, I, I said, okay, we need to go back and work on, on industry and, and, and especially climate change. So I went off to Sweden and I did a master's degree in uh, sustainable business design. And uh, I did my thesis on sustainable power generation, which is it's, it's uh, stationary electrical generation. So then I, and then I taught in uh, Kingston in a college, in a renewable energy program. Uh, for a year, and then my my views on on things were not appreciated. I mean, they didn't fire me or anything, but I just I said, okay, this is going to be a long slog. And so I I said, finally, okay, it's time to join an intentional community. So uh, by now, I had a uh, um, spouse and I had uh, a baby on the way. So uh, sold the house in Ontario, bought uh, and and moved uh, out west and got a trailer and a truck and drove around looking for an intentional community. Ideally, it's a, it's a group of houses on a piece of land, shared real estate, shared infrastructure, people working together, having a shared garden. Uh, we didn't find that. By then, we were on Vancouver Island going north and came to Camel River and said, let's go to Quadra and turn around Quadra and then said, well, let's go to Cortez. It has evolved to the point where now um, I just want to be in a community, in a place where I feel that I can build resilience and where the community itself and its geography and its environment is one that is resilient. And resilient being the attempt to 
live in a situation where whatever shocks come at you, you are capable uh, to your best abilities to to withstand those shocks and even thrive. So anyway, that's what got me here. Chris Walker believes the forces that collapse civilization are all around us. We're in a stock market bubble. We're in a real estate bubble. And, and we are now facing a, a, a pandemic, which has created a lot of uncertainties, which have already had massive impacts on certain industries, especially tourism. And those industries right now are just hemorrhaging and probably only staying alive because of the, the loans and the, and the bailouts that they're receiving. And similarly, a lot of people paying their mortgages. Right now, they've got a mortgage deferral. You know, their jobs are, are furloughed or never coming back. And they're also getting the SERP. So in terms of the short to medium term, I don't think the full effects of the pandemic are being felt. They are being cushioned. And whether or not that's wise government policy is another debate that I wouldn't pretend to know the answer to. However, the effect is, is, is doing what governments pretty much now rely upon, which is kicking the can down the road. It's like we're on the Titanic, and we hit our first iceberg. We seem to have plugged the hole, but we tore up the deck to do it. The pandemic did not cause this economic challenge that we got right now. Um, it, it triggered it, but it, it, it's, it was already in the cards. It was already coming along. And that's been predicted by lots of people. Um, even you can start to read in Forbes magazine, the IMF um, World Bank reports are, st- are starting to say there are some serious problems, especially when you get into your debt-to-GDP uh, ratio. Let's not pretend that I know how a debt-to-GDP ratio threatens our economic sustainability, but let's not let that stop me from referring to Wikipedia. GDP is our gross domestic product, or the amount of money we make as a country every year. In the 07-08 fiscal year, Canada had a debt of 400 $57 billion, which was 31% of our GDP. By 2017-18, our debt had risen to $768 billion, which was 33% of GDP. Canada's finance minister expects a $343 billion deficit this year and a 40% drop in GDP, resulting in a debt-to-GDP ratio of 49%. It means we'll have to grow the economy, extract more stuff from the land and sea to pay it back. Don't worry, we're told. We'll fix the deck once we get back up to full speed. Economically, we're in Canada is in probably as good a shape as any relative to other countries. But um, overall, the debt level is is extreme, and that's why they have to keep their interest rates at half a percent, quarter percent, and that means that. The money has nowhere to go except the stock market. So perversely, the stock market does well, even though the, the economy is obviously in trouble and there's a lot of civil unrest. Debt is a claim upon future generations' wealth. And um, as time goes on, our ability to generate that extra wealth, even to pay the interest on it, let alone pay down the, the debt, is, is very diminished. And I've never heard a politician explain how... Now our national debts are ever going to get paid off. They don't. They just get bigger and bigger. Now they're getting bigger at an enormous rate. So, you know, that's a financial debt. And we've got our environmental debt. 
um, our debt that we're taking out on the natural capital of the planet. Every proclamation and every policy that comes out of the Ministry of Finance in Canada and every other G7 country, G20 country, whatever you like, it's all about how can we promote more economic growth. That particular piece of policy commitment is probably one of the greatest mistakes and sources of our of the inability of our economy and our society to to adapt properly to what we're facing. And we've assumed that all growth is good, more is better, um, and that the economy must keep expanding forever, exponentially. And as has been said many times by many environmentalists, that's suicidal, you know, that's the logic of the yeast uh, cell in a on a Petri dish, and it expands and eats all its food and dies. Solving our problems with growth is like the Titanic not only having to get back up to full speed, it has to keep accelerating all the time, or else it'll sink. I mean, we're, we're living beyond our means. That, that's a common theme. We're living beyond the, the capability of the planet to regenerate supplies with what we need. And we're taking it away from other biota. And um, the, you know, the net mass of living things is actually declining under our stewardship. The problems are very deep and systemic and that uh, we're probably past the point where we can change our economics to, to stop the decline. The Club of Rome report in Limits to Growth came out that pretty much explains everything and, and the uh, logic behind that report is still uh, entirely valid. The Club of Rome was formed when a small international group of people from the fields of academia, civil society, diplomacy, and industry met in a villa in Rome in 1968. In 1972, the group published its first report, Limits to Growth. The study used the World 3 computer model to simulate the consequence of interactions between the Earth and human systems. The research team came to the following conclusions. Given business as usual, i.e. no changes to historical growth trends, the limits to growth on Earth would become evident by 2072, leading to sudden and uncontrollable decline in both population and industrial capacity. This includes the following. Global industrial output per capita reaches a peak around 2008, followed by a rapid decline. Global food per capita reaches a peak around 2020, followed by a rapid decline. Global services per capita reaches a peak around 2020, followed by a rapid decline. Global population reaches a peak in 2030, followed by a rapid decline. Growth trends existing in 1972 could be altered so that sustainable ecological and economic stability could be achieved. And, the group concluded, the sooner the world's people start striving for the second outcome, the better the chance of achieving it. Nobody, not even the smartest person I know writing about this stuff, will, will try and say when things are going to kick off, which is unfortunately what everybody wants to know. They say, well, okay, when is it going to happen? And, and it's just like, you're not going to know what's going to happen because you're in the middle of it already. It can be hard to see a collapse coming. It can be hard to see it even when it's happening. How can you be here and look around and say that we have too many people on the planet and not enough resources, right? We're surrounded by deer and possible arable land and sunshine and rain falling out of the sky. We've got endless amount of fresh water. We've got trees 
going on for everywhere, super high quality, building materials all around us, right? Really hard to be living here and look around and say, you know, that we are facing, you know, a collapse in, in Western civilization and the Western model of, eco of economic activity in the near term. Very difficult. So why is it so hard to see? Because it's a thinking problem that we have as much as a resource problem and a pollution problem and a, and, a, and a global warming problem. The myth of progress, which is probably one of the biggest impediments to people coming to terms with even being able to talk about the possibility of that, that we are going to go into decline or we're in decline and that that decline beca could become rather jagged and, and dramatic. Um, and that is the myth of our time, the myth of our culture which is that we are on a trajectory of increasing everything. We're going to get more food and more horsepower and more bandwidth and more variety of ketchup and more uh, destinations that we can go to in a jet plane and, and that things are always going to get bigger, faster, better. And we have our devices and we have our computers, which are something that we're in touch with every day on a, for some time, you know, some of us, many hours, and they are amazing, miraculous devices. So unfortunately, we've got the feedback that we are amazing and our gadgets are amazing. Therefore, we are capable of fixing any problem. It's a very difficult thing to do to try and accept that this fabulously impressive technological-based civilization that we've been able to create with all of its wonders uh, it's very difficult um, and, and frightening to try and imagine, well, is this really going to not be here for my children and my grandchildren? We have a lot of thinking problems. Discomfort with uncertainty, the sunk cost fallacy, groupthink, and escalation of commitment are all cognitive biases that come to mind, and there are many more. These thinking problems make it really hard to see the predicament we are in, and make rational decisions to slow the ship down, assess the damage, and make a permanent fix. It seems to be the way we're wired. It's tempting to say, well, that's because humans are stupid or we're evil or whatever. It, no, we're not. We're just, we're, we're far more beholden to our status-seeking ape ancestry, social DNA, uh, and our, the limbic part of our brain. And, and we are not rational uh, creatures. Uh, we are rationalizing creatures. I didn't make that up. Somebody else did. It's great. It's a great line. And it's so true. And it explains so much when people try and understand why are things the way they are. So I don't expect that. I don't expect great things. What I, what I, where I do expect great things from humanity or from at least, you know, people locally and around the world is that uh, we will behave better generally than we're given credit for in a crisis. And I think history has, has borne that out, that people do pull together. And in fact, the looting and the Mad Max disaster style is, is actually relatively rare. But hasn't the pandemic offered a demonstration of how we can see a threat coming, at least a week or two in advance, and make an altruistic collective decision to keep everyone safe and taken care of? The pandemic, I mean, people understand flu epidemics to the extent that they are worried. They recognize it as a 
finite and real threat to their health and happiness. So it's a lot easier once you've once you've presented that threat to people and saying this thing can kill you it's it can damage your internal organs and da 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 and you don't want to get this and it, you can transmit it to your friends and family and you don't want to do that so people i think kind of got it okay this is something that we all need to get together so there, i think there was a definitely a tremor of fear that went through the herd and how would that relate to people cooperating about another threat which is much more amorphous and and much larger and less visible and it's also it, it's it's also something that people just don't want to believe <laughs> they don't want to believe that uh, our civilization could collapse in some form or another so what are we talking about here what does collapse look like collapse it's already occurring around the world that's our future collapse will manifest itself in different ways at a different scale but we can see it already around us. Syria is a good example. The, the causes for that, what's happened in Syria, are, are complex. But broadly speaking, you've got a country with a population that is outstripping its capacity to provide food for its citizens. They have had climate change, uh, large-scale persistent crop failures because of droughts. Um, and soil erosion in, in certain areas, which led to populations migrating to the cities and causing instability and, and animosity. And then you start to get to the point of civil war and you get other players moving in, um, exploiting what's going on, and you start to have things break down. And a relatively uh, advanced civil, you know, society, they had roads and hospitals and electricity and sanitation, and running water, and they were quite advanced. And now they're going backwards. And there's other countries like Venezuela that are in a similar position. Um, and uh, that's, they are, they, you know, they're places you can look to to see what happens. Argentina, Brazil, serious financial upheaval, um, and where the lifespan of people and their quality, of, the standard of living is in, it seems to be in stagnation or decline. And it can happen. It can happen to them. It can happen to us. And, and again, the collapse doesn't have to mean Mad Max. The Soviet Union is a great example of a country uh, or an empire that collapsed in my lifetime, in your lifetime. And um, three years before it collapsed, two years before it collapsed, people were still talking about the terrible power of, this, of the Soviet Union as a threat to the West. They were still seen as a large economic power and everything, but it was sclerotic and it was rotten and it was teetering. And then it fell overnight and almost overnight. And very few people predicted that was going to come. Their death rate went way up. Suicides went up. Alcoholism went up. Their economy underwent a massive contraction. Their, their, their currency collapsed. They had almost a civil war. Um, their their republic, you know, the the actual Soviet Union broke up into a whole bunch of separate countries again. So that was a major collapse, um, and it was very difficult for Russians. But they held it together. They and even though you know because the government still provided them with housing, even though the people maintaining the housing weren't being paid, and they still heated them through the winter, and they still had a form of medical system that was operating. And people there are, are naturally more resilient in Russia and they have more connection to the land and 
there's a much more of a cultural thing where people have a connection to somebody who still lives in the countryside and still grows food and has a garden and so on because of the trauma they suffered in World War II, I think, is a big part of that. And so there's an example of a place that collapsed and it and now they're they are re, have recovered and they're arguably in better shape, or at least Russia is, and a lot of the republics are doing pretty well. And they came out of it, you know. Now the collapse that we're gonna see is probably gonna be a lot more profound and messier uh, than what they suffered. Um, but it's not the end of the world. A nuclear war could be the end of the world, um, and runaway climate change could be the end of the world. But the, the planet could recover and our culture could recover. Okay, so it does happen. And what's trying to get us? We have hit peak oil, and that's, that's the largest, or at least the most salient factor that's going to affect what happens to Western economies is our access to cheap fossil fuels and specifically oil, because oil is the foundation of our economy, mining, transportation, tourism, food production. These all use, they don't use electric trucks. They don't use coal powered railways. They use diesel powered machinery on a vast scale. Energy being the fundamental resource, it's the key resource uh, from which everything else is, all the other economic activity is um, built. And constraints in energy will affect everything more than constraints in, say, copper or whatever. You can substitute some materials for other materials. You can substitute growing wheat here for growing rice there to get calories and so on. But you cannot, there is no substitute for energy. And the fossil fuel burst that we've had was such a was an amazing gift that turned us from a, a slowly industrializing civilization to a very rapidly out of control industrializing growing civilization. So we are facing the point where very, very key limit on economic activity has already started is the EROI, energy return on investment. Um, and more specifically, energy returned on energy invested. And if you are getting to a point where you're investing one unit of energy to get one unit of energy out, you run out of energy. The first oil wells drilled in, uh, you know, in Alberta, in Canada, the early development of oil saw energy returns of like 30 to 1, 40 to 1. In Saudi Arabia, they've got fields there that still produce 80 to 1, 100 to 1. But those fields are almost done. They're de they are depleting. Tar sands, you're looking at 5 to 1, 6 to 1, something like that. And after about 3 to 1, you're kind of pooched because that's just to get the oil out of the ground. Then you have to transport it. You have to refine it. You have to transport it again. And naturally, we go for the low-hanging fruit, the easily recovered oil. So even though we have, they rightly say, we're at basically the peak, which that's the peak in oil production. It follows a curve like a mountain, sloped on both sides. Production goes up, peaks, and production goes down. Which means the backside and the front side, you've got the same amount of oil or fossil fuels of it can be extracted. But the backside of the curve is the stuff that's difficult to get at and requires greater complexity and greater amounts of machinery and investment and provides oil for a shorter and shorter period of time. And that's where they're at with fracking. 
and and tar sands. Tar sands is bad. The fracking is even worse. Financially, they've never made profit. So we're we're scraping the bottom of the energy barrel, and we cannot easily substitute other stuff for oil, like even coal, and um, and biofuels. They don't make economic sense, and they're destructive, and so on. And you, you can come up with all these technological fixes to solve that ener- liquid liquid uh, energy source problem. And there, there isn't anything that's scalable that will give us what we need to maintain what we, what we are dependent upon. What other sources of instability are there? The election in the states is very fractious. Um, Donald Trump is a is what he is, and he is um, uh, he's a force of chaos among other things. There is definitely there's a possibility that you know he could uh, refuse to accept the election. He could bring in authoritarianism. Uh, in the United States, there could be the start of a, a simmering civil war type of situation there. Trump has torn up certain agreements that were very carefully and painfully put together. That is, you know, a, a huge threat to us. Climate change could be another is another possible huge threat, but again, that's a longer term, depending on again who you talk to. But I mean, even if we didn't have climate change, there's so many other things, fundamental problems that uh, that are going to be serious challenges for business as usual. I mean, we could get another black swan. There's a lot of really destabilizing possibilities right now. A black swan is an interesting metaphor. I had to look it up. It began to be used in the second century Europe, referring to something that does not exist or is not possible. Black swans were thought to be non-existent, and relying on a black swan as a piece of knowledge undermines the other assumptions and conclusions in that knowledge. But in 1697, the first European laid his eyes on an actual black swan, and the metaphor was flipped, coming to mean that you may think something is impossible, but one cannot prove a negative, or an absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And since then, through the writing of Nassim Taleb, It has evolved to mean a thing that is rare, has a huge impact in history, is extremely hard to predict, and, in hindsight, seems unavoidable. Taleb considers COVID-19 to be a white swan. Such an event has a major effect, but is compatible with statistical properties, as in, we should have seen it coming. Though he also says the blackness of the swan is in the eye of the beholder. What may be a black swan surprise for a turkey is not a black swan surprise to its butcher. Hence, the objective should be to avoid being the turkey by identifying areas of vulnerability in order to turn the black swans white. So, now that we have some white swans swimming around the Titanic, what should we do about it? If people are, like, feeling that maybe there's something in this whole idea that we are headed towards um, collapse, educating themselves, number one, and there's great resources, simplifying their lives, reducing the amount of fossil fuels they use and the amount of energy they consume generally, staying in good physical condition, um, eating a healthy diet, and um, getting exercise. Need to get your teeth done, get them done. Right? If you, if, um, if they, you know, making sure that you have the prescriptions that you want uh, as much as possible stockpiled in advance. Uh, sounds maybe a little crazy, but, uh, and, Getting your financial house in order as much as possible, putting off unnecessary large expenditures, especially if it involves getting into debt, uh, paying off debt as much as possible, and working on 
your garden, getting some veggies growing, question authority with the caveat that there's a lot of misinformation out there, in my opinion. And Chris wanted to add by email that uh, reskilling, finding some relevant new talents to develop would be a great thing to do. Chris recommends checking out peakprosperity.com for more information on financial collapse. And he shared with me uh, doomfordummies.blogspot.com. It is a great curated list of resources that talk about collapse. Thanks so much to Chris Walker for putting himself out there and declaring his nuttery. Surely it's not all that strange in this community, but it still takes courage. Best of luck to you all out there during these trying times. You've been listening to 89.5 CKTZ Cortez Community Radio. This has been Max Tyson for Cortez Currents. This program was funded by a grant from the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the Government of Canada's Local Journalism Initiative.